0: All right, everybody. Good morning. How we doing? Good. Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here with us this weekend. I'm glad you took time out of your busy schedule to come worship with us and to learn a little bit more about God. And that's really why we all come here. We all have, uh, in one way or another, discovered that our lives actually didn't end up perhaps where we thought we might be able to take them. And along the way, we begin to realize that we're actually not God and that we desperately need one. And so we come to places like this and we try to understand and we try to learn and we think that if we just learn enough, somehow we'll figure it out and then we can can make a decision. But the reality is as we learn, as we study God's word, as we surrender our opinions and ideas to his, we begin to fall in love. And what we thought was a journey of the mind is actually a journey of the heart. And once we surrender our lives to him, he begins to change us. And it's not that we change, he changes us from the inside and we can't explain it. We're not the person we used to be. And we would never want to go back. And so we come back here each week to try to learn more, to surrender more so we can be changed more. And we're now in week 20. What? What? 20. We're almost half, okay. Okay. We're in week 20 of a titled sermon called, uh, What in the World is Going On? And we've made it all the way to Revelation chapter 10. We're not even halfway yet. But I thought it'd be a good time to stop for a minute, because, see, it's so easy when you read the book of Revelation to just focus on all the wow factors. And I want us to start today thinking, why did God decide to write the book of Revelation? He didn't have to. He could have ended the book with the gospel, of the apostles, and, and yet for some reason he wrote a book, a book that tells us about the future. And we learn, John told us in one of the very first verses, he said, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after these. So God wanted us to see not only what's happened, not only what is happening, but what will happen in the future. That's nice, isn't it? I mean, he wanted us to know the future. God wanted us to know what would happen in the future. Great. But knowing that still doesn't answer why. Why? 99% of all believers who've ever lived dating back 2,000 years, are going to be dead and with Jesus when all this occurs. Most believers are never going to see end times. Most believers are never going to see uh, the uh, temple rebuilt. Most believers are never going to see the Antichrist. When you look at it over 2,000 years, most of us aren't going to be there. When all this goes down, yet God goes out of his way to give us an entire book that's full of incredible visions and dramatic scenes and horrific judgments, amazing promises, and even wondrous revelations of what's to come. We see all the horror and we see all the judgment, but we also see a new heaven and a new earth. We see Jesus wiping away every tear. We see glimpses of heaven. We get to see what the throne looks like. We see the elders, the angels. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing moment in our future. But knowing all those things doesn't really change them. These are promises from God. They're certain to occur. It's going to play out exactly like he says. And if you think about it, knowing everything that's going to happen with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, it's just information. Okay, so we know. We studied the seals. We're studying the trumpets. We'll study the bowls. At the end of this series, we're going to know a whole lot about this book. God's clued us in. We're in the know. But is that really what God wanted? I mean, did he just want a bunch of followers who knew the future and trusted him to achieve it? Maybe that's part of it. But God gave us the book of Revelation so we'd understand the future and because of that knowledge of the future, change the present. You see, it's very easy to get to this point in Revelation and just focus on the details of what happens and which seal and when did it occur and was it pre-trib or all that stuff and miss the point of Revelation. The only reason to know and study the book of Revelation is so it can change you right now. Knowing the future changes your present. Surrendering to God's future changes your perspective. It changes the way you live. It's true that most who read and study these pages will not be here when these events happen. Hopefully, they'll be raptured. But the real question is, how many of that 99% changed their lives because of what they learned? How many people changed the way they lived tomorrow because of what they know about God's promises in the future? Did reading these truths motivate them to change? Did it spur them on to action? Does knowing the future inspire evangelism? Does it bring about a sense of urgency? Does it help you see that everything in the world, everything you've stored up is temporary and to live like it? See, if we're really going to learn about Revelation and not be changed by Revelation, then we can just stop. I mean, if we're just here to learn about the seals and learn about the trumpets and be able to argue with people about what occurs and when it occurs and which army is which animal, I mean, it's ridiculous. So the moment in this book we've reached an interlude, a pause, it's a good time to refocus, it's a good time to spend some time in self-reflection. Have I changed the way I live today based on what I've learned in the last 20 weeks? Am I different than I was when we started this journey, or am I just soaking in information? Has this story motivated me to go tell other people about what's going to happen in the future? Have I shared the gospel with more people? Have I prayed more fervently for the lost, for an opportunity to reach them with the truth of all that I'm learning? Have I refocused my priorities because of what I'm learning? What do I need to do to make sure that I get everything out of the next 13 chapters to make sure that I'm not just learning, but actually changing? God wrote Revelation just like he wrote every word in the Bible. To change us, shape us, to to mold us, to motivate us, to transform us. That's what his truth does. As we continue in Revelation, let's make sure that we realize that what we learn here doesn't matter if it doesn't change who we are in Christ. James told us that faith, and I would add to that knowledge, without works is useless. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. My prayer is that your tomorrow will be different because of what we learn from the Holy Spirit today. We've reached the last interlude in Revelation. Twice during Revelation, God stops and allows us to catch our breath, to contemplate, to think, to focus on what's to come. The first interlude, if you remember, was between the sixth and seventh seals. If you remember, heaven went quiet for 30 minutes. And then it ushered in the three woes, like the world was preparing for what's next. Now we've reached the sixth trumpet. And before we go to the seventh, God has placed another interlude, a moment to stop and reflect and think, a pause before he ends everything. These interludes serve a dramatic purpose, but they also show mercy. God is allowing more time for people to turn back to Him. Before I unleash the next series of bowls or seals, I want to give you time to think. I want to give you time to process. He's still trying to get people on earth to turn back to Him. It's as if God brought things to the brink and then He pulls back a little to give mankind a little more time to repent. Revelation 10 1 through 14 is an interlude. well, 10-1 through eleven fourteen is an interlude. It's, it's a parenthesis between the 6th and the 7th trumpet. There's no parallel interlude when we get to the bowls. This is the last interlude. This is the last pause that God gives in Revelation. The reason is clear. Once the bowl judgments start, they start one after another, and it is done. So here... Devastating and horrific judgment is interrupted for a moment. An additional information on previous events. And we're going to see during this interlude, God tells us a lot about the Word of God and about who the players are going to be in the next 13 chapters. It's almost like he said, okay, now, before I open these bowls, let me just introduce some people to you. And that's where we're going to be in the next two weeks, looking at the people that God is introducing. Now there's certainly a change of subject here as well. When we were in chapter 8 and 9, we were seeing the wrath of God being poured out on an unbelieving world. Revelation repeatedly calls those who live on earth, those who lack the seal of God's protection as unbelieving humanity. But now God turns and he's going to start offering encouragement to believers. You see, God's hidden plan is going to be revealed and accomplished. You can trust Him to finish things in His way under His sovereignty and His authority. You can be confident in His purposes. You can keep proclaiming the gospel to your friends knowing that it's true. There's a price to pay, but God's going to honor and vindicate His people. Chapter 10 begins with a word from heaven that is both instructive and timely. And let me just dive in there. I want to read to you the passage we're going to be doing today. And then I'm going to come back and unpack each verse, okay, like we normally do. Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, don't write it down. And the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he had announced to his servants, the prophet's then a voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me saying go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll and he said to me take it and eat it it will make your stomach bitter but your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth but when I'd eaten it my stomach was bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So we're in this interlude between the 6th and 7th trumpet. Let's just go back and start. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like fire, pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now it's unlikely that this angel is one of the angels that we know. It's most likely not Michael. Uh, it's also most likely okay. in the New Testament. End of the tribulation. The Greek word here means another. It means one of the same kind. That is another created being like the angels, an angel, another angel, one we haven't learned yet. Not one of the seven angels blowing the trumpets, but clearly one of the highest ranking angels in heaven. He's filled with splendor and greatness and strength. He's not small, by the way. Most likely he's huge. Steps on the land and the sea. He's another mighty angel. Angels are mentioned more than 60 times in the book of Revelation. Mighty or strong angels are mentioned three times. This angel coming down from heaven is described as mighty. Perhaps just because he's majestic and huge. In the last chapter we just saw demons coming up out of the abyss. Remember the abyss was open and the demons came up. Now we see the angel coming down. Don't miss that sort of paradox, okay? I mean, that's there for a reason. Demons come from under, angels come down. They're going to meet in the middle, which is what Revelation is about. This angel is God's servant descends from above. He comes to earth with great authority and is God's ambassador. He has a rainbow over his head a sign of God's covenant of faithfulness. Even though the final judgments are coming, even though he has to bring in the final judgments, he's going to have to pour out his wrath on the sin that remains. He wants you to remember there's still a covenant of mercy. There's still a promise to protect a group. It echoes the story of Noah and the flood. It adorns this angel's head like a crown. Maybe it represents the merciful character of this angel's mission and the faithfulness and patience of God. But he's crowned with a covenant, and God's final judgment is coming. The angel's face was like the sun, it says, brilliant and radiant. Why? Because he's just been in the presence of God. He's an awesome reflection of the Lord. So massive is this angel that he lays claim for his message on all the earth, setting his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And by the way, that's mentioned three times. Three times is the number of completion. In Hebrew and Greek, if you want to make something bold, highlighted, and bigger font, you just set it three times. So they want you to know this angel has authority, puts his foot on the earth and on the sea. It projects his authority over land and sea. His authority is indirect. He's a messenger of God. His stance indicates complete authority over the entire earth. He is command of the earth. Power is given to him by God, which is universal. All things are under his feet. So it's indicated that whatever follows from this point out Is targeting the entire world, not part of it. Remember in the past, we were seeing God's wrath poured out on unbelievers. We were seeing things happen to those who didn't have the steel, the stamp. From this point forward, whatever happens on earth is happening across the earth to everything. Revelation 10.3. And called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And he called out the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. He cried out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. He wanted his message to warn everybody and to be heard by everybody. His cry is accompanied by seven thunders. Seven thunders. Most likely, seven commandments from the throne of God himself. Voice like thunder. And the little scroll is the word of God. Seven thunders, there's an additional judgment by God. A judgment that will comprehensively impact the entire world. Remember I told you that in Revelation we rarely see anything new, right? Whatever we see in Revelation has been mentioned in previous books. In fact, I've said it at least 50 times. But if you want to understand Revelation, you've got to understand the first 65 books that lead to it. Psalm 29.3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The Lord's voice, the Lord's power, the thunders of his voice from heaven have been released. Seven of them, we don't know what he said. Seven seals have affected the earth. Six trumpets have blown in what seems to be cataclysmic judgment. We're about to see seven thunders released. They've already sounded, they're ready to act. John's ready to write them down. And then something amazing happens. John hears a voice. Seal up what the seven thunders said. Don't write it down. Why? Those are the only words in Revelation that are sealed up. Revelation 22.10 we'll find says, Don't seal the prophetic word of this book because the time is near. And yet this time John is commanded not to write what the thunders said. So you might ask yourself, okay, all right, all right. If if we're not allowed to know what he said, why do we need to know that he said anything? Why didn't John just keep quiet? Well, one result of it should let us know that as servants of God, we don't know everything. Not every mystery has to be revealed to us. We're on a need-to-know basis. God knows far more than we know. There are mysteries in the prophetic scenario of the end that should keep us humble. We clearly don't know and don't need to know all the things that God has planned in the end times. God has revealed much, but there are secrets He's chosen not to reveal. He can do that. He's God. Doesn't owe you anything. Giving you far more than you thought you deserved. In fact... Scriptures tell us Jesus did so many things they couldn't even write them all down. There's a lot we don't know. We should not act as though we know everything that has been revealed. We know what God wants us to know. Exactly why John is not allowed to write down the thunders is a mystery. Maybe someday we'll know. And again, maybe not. John is being told to affirm God's sovereign control over the judgments that are proclaimed in the thunders and is prohibited from revealing what they do. The major message of the thunders is sovereignty. God is sovereign and we're not. God is in control and the saints do not need to know all the details. Verse 5 And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and who is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. In a a moment of oath-taking, solemn oath-taking, this angel raises his right hand And he takes an oath. This is the only time an oath is taken in Revelation. The message of the angel is twofold. There will be no delay. From this point forward, there's no delay. We are rapidly moving to the end. We are going to pour out bowl after bowl after bowl. We are not stopping for anything. God's wrath is moving towards judgment. And from this point forward, nothing slows down. This answers the question of the martyrs in chapter 6. How long, Lord, will we have to wait till this moment? From this point forward, I'm bringing my wrath, God says. Evil will now run its course quickly. The Antichrist will arise from the abyss. He'll emerge as a world leader. God and evil, the lamb and the dragon, are headed for cosmic conflict. It's a global showdown, and it's going to happen soon from this point on. Second, the angel sounds to send forth the seven bowls. The blowing of the seventh trumpet brings about the seven bowls. Just like the prophets had promised, and we've looked at that. Now, in the New Testament, a mystery is not something unknown that man figures out. A mystery is something God knows, a truth, that's previously been concealed, but God has now allowed us to see it. Does that make sense? In other words, it's, when you read about mysteries in the Bible, it's not that it's not known. God knows. It's just that man doesn't know. Until God chooses to open our eyes and let us see it. God's plan and purpose in creation and redemption, made possible through the blood of the Lamb, is now being revealed. He is the God who created heaven, earth, and sea, and what's in it. Spoken three times, by the way. He's sovereign creator. He alone is the source, the ultimate cause of all that is. This angel could not have sworn by any greater God will confirm his word. Verse 8, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. This voice from heaven speaks again. Sovereignty of God. He's directing everything that happens. This voice commands authority and demands obedience. God is, or John is told to go and take the scroll. Now, I promise you, he would not have approached this huge angel without commands from God to do it. The scroll looks little because it's compared to him, and it's little. These are imperative commands go and take, God says. Interestingly, the scroll is already open. For you, me, we have an open book God has prepared for us to read, and it's called the Bible. As John's commanded to go and take this little scroll, God commands us to go and take his word and explore its truth. There's an open book ready for the taking. This scroll represents the truth of the word of God. All you have to do is go get it. John approaches the angel. He requests the scroll. The angel tells him, take it and eat it. Again, the verbs are imperative. They are commands, not options, not ideas, not recommendations. John is to take the scroll and to devour it, to completely eat it up. You now, I told you there's nothing new in the Bible, at least in Revelation. We've seen this scroll before, we've heard about this scroll before. We know it's the Word of God, not because of Revelation, but because. Of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words came to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Ezekiel, but you son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were words written of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And as soon as he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it, and I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey." Powerful image for the way we should approach the word of God. Feast on it. Eat it. Soak it up. Absorb it. This book is honey. The word of God is compared to bread, meat, milk. Psalm nineteen seven: The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, more than fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. God is giving us, through these passages and in Revelation, the spiritual diet for nourishment. However, he says, when you ingest, when you feed, when you absorb, when you take in the Word of God... It's sweet on the way in, but it's also bitter. There's something bitter about it. Gospel message of Jesus, his saving, his sanctification is the sweetest thing ever. Full of joy and gladness. Think about that when you first turned back to Christ, when you came looking for answers, when you were empty, when you when you knew you had a void you couldn't fill, and then you met Jesus, and all of a sudden your eyes are open. All of a sudden, everything starts to change. Everything, your perspective changes. You understand why you're here, you understand what you're doing, you understand who's in charge. Everything changes, and it's magnificent. It's wonderful. You're full of joy and gladness. It's some of the greatest moments of your life. It's sweet to our mouth because it reveals God's grace and goodness and His love and His mercy and His plans and His purpose and His will and His ways. And it reminds us He never gave up on us. No matter how bad we were, no matter how far from Him we were, He's still there ready to receive us. That's wonderful. It's like honey. Yet soon after we taste the goodness of God's Word, as we ingest it, as we chew on it, as we take the truth in our lives, we come to a very difficult realization. As followers of Jesus, we begin to learn and understand that this joy comes with another truth. Living your life for Christ is going to call sacrifice, and persecution, suffering. Some are martyred some surrender, we're going to experience honey. But also, we have some times of bitterness in our walk with Christ. For those who choose to reject Jesus, his truth reveals that it is full of sorrow and punishment and bitterness and sadness and eternal doom it's a word of judgment to unbelievers when you read the word of God you begin to go oh God people are going to hell A word of persecution and suffering for those who reject Christ all who love Jesus can relate to John's experience here believers long for Christ to return in his glory for Satan to be destroyed for the glorious kingdom of our Lord to be set up on earth and when time he will rule sovereignly glory while establishing righteousness and truth and peace he'll finally set the world right we learn about that and we're like yes Jesus come come now that's the sweetness that's the honey that's God's truth we'll have challenges and suffering along the way but the experience is sweet but at the same time That honey comes with an awareness of something very bitter. You see, the truth of God's plan we learn brings us great sorrow as we begin to understand what God has to do to those who reject Him. We all love non believers, we all love people that we work with, people in our families, our children, other people. And and as we surrender to Christ, he shows us even more love. Our our concern for them becomes greater and greater and greater. And yet there's this reality that non-believers who reject Jesus are headed to hell. Not my words, God's. And and many of us, I know me, I think about people I love and I'm like, God, please let me take their place. I'll, I'll take their place. Just... Pour out your punishment on me. Let them go where you want them to go, God. Let let me stand in their place. You see, because I love them so much, God, and I know the truth, and they don't seem to be able to understand it. They don't know what's coming. I'll take their place, God. I don't know very many parents who wouldn't take the place of their children if they had the choice. Where does that come from? Jesus. That's exactly what he did. God, don't pour your punishment out on the people I love. I'll take it for them. I'll go to the cross. I'll take their place. Romans 9.1 Paul says this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh. You see, when you feed on the word of God, when you ingest it into your life, the Holy Spirit gives you a love for other people that is so strong that you wish you could take their place. You love your children, you love your family, you die for them. You wish there was a way to take their place and save them from the wrath that is coming their way. Why do you feel that way? Because you have Christ in you. And that's what he did. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place. The word is sweet to the taste, but once it's ingested, there's bitterness in the stomach because of the truth that's revealed in the word. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now, verse 10 is very interesting. A lot of times I tell people, when you see something, ask yourself before you read ahead, what do you expect the next verse to be? Okay, so he says here in verse 10, that it was sweet in the mouth, but it made my stomach bitter. You might expect God to tell us, well, the sweetness is going to far outweigh the bitterness. The bitterness only occurs for a brief time on earth. The sweetness lasts for all of eternity. That's what I would expect the next verse to say. But instead, God had another idea. I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That's odd. And then it's not. He may as well have said, John, there's an antidote to that sick feeling you have in your stomach because of what's going to happen to the lost. You want to get rid of that sick feeling, John? Proclaim the gospel to them. It's the only thing that gets rid of that feeling you have. Proclaim it and keep proclaiming it. You need to prophesy, preach, teach again, John. You're at the end of your life, but you're not done yet. You need to keep telling the truth. You see, as we study end times, it's sweet, but it's also nauseating. Many people that we know and love are going to hell. They're going to reject Jesus' offer. They're going to have to pay the wrath of their sins themselves. They're going to tell Jesus, what you did on the cross means nothing to me. And they'll stand and die in the wrath of a holy God who did everything to keep them from requiring that he pour out his justice. If you read the book of the Bible, it's like, please don't make me do this. Please turn back. Please come to your senses. Turn back to me, please. I'm a just, righteous God. I can't ignore your sin. It's got to be paid for. I love you, but I'm just. You see, as John reaches this interlude, he begins to feel the weight of the gospel. He sees the vision of God's wrath on unbelievers. The bitterness of the gospel is paramount. I was telling Tammy the other day, I'm really struggling with this. This heaviness that comes. That's why it's very hard to teach revelation because it's very heavy. You begin to see the world differently. You walk around and you see masses and your thought is they're going to hell. What am I to do? The the message was beautiful, wonderful, honey to me, but my stomach's ready to vomit over what I'm seeing in the world. God doesn't tell John that the bitterness is temporary and the sweetness is forever, even though it is. He tells John that bitterness should drive you to do something. John, don't just sit there and marvel in what has been revealed to you. You need to act. You must again preach the future about what's going to happen to many peoples, many nations, many languages, and many kings. John, we're not finished That bitterness you have in your stomach, you've got the antidote, it's preaching the gospel. God is telling John, I didn't show you all this stuff, so you just have some information. Knowing all this, you must, it's a command in the word, you must again preach. He didn't say, it'd be a nice idea if you did, it's optional. He said, no, John, you must preach the gospel. You must tell the world what I have shown you. Though it's not identical, this command is very similar to the Great Commission. You must is a moral imperative, a spiritual obligation. Like the book itself, God is proclaiming the word to the nations is bittersweet. It's bitter and a word of judgment to those who refuse to repent, but it's sweet to those who surrender to Christ. Same message. Many of us will sit around the table or chat on the phone with loved ones this Thanksgiving. As you speak to them, your stomach may start to churn. You may want to tell them everything that you know, everything that you've learned. But they've rejected that message so many times. That's why your stomach's turning. That's why it's really hard to think about anything else. People that you love are still stiff-arming Jesus and you don't know what to do about it. And it's so sweet to you and so bitter at the same time and they're not even worried about it. You're up at night pacing the floor praying to God. Your stomach wants to vomit and they don't even have a clue. You know they hate it when you bring up the Jesus stuff. You want so badly for them to know Jesus that it makes you physically sick. That's what John is realizing after ingesting the word of God. The gospel message, the sweetness has passed. The bitterness now remains. This weekend, when that bitterness hits the pit of your stomach, I want you to remember the antidote that God gave John. You must speak again. That's a command from God. We're no more passive in this plan than John is. God has clued us in on the future because we have a role to play in that plan right now. We're here right now for a reason. Think about that for a moment. God's ultimate plan for mankind includes us acting on what we know, boldly telling the truth, allowing the revelation of Jesus Christ to change us today and also change our tomorrow. We don't call ourselves apostles and we don't receive literal visions and we don't get new revelations outside the word of God. We're not required to swallow some prophetic book and utter words afterwards. But each of us has been given a crucial mission, just as important as John's. To share the good news of salvation with the world. Yet just like John, we've got to internalize the message first. You can't share what you haven't ingested. You can't share what you haven't been uh, surrendered to. Because when you start to share, people are going to look at your life. Did ingesting the word of God change who you are? Devour the Word of God. Feed on it. Ingest it. Absorb it. Be spiritually full of God's Word. It'll change everything about every day. You will begin to see your only purpose here is to glorify His name. In fact, when you're so full of God's Word, it changes everything about you, it changes how you live. You see, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we must not only understand, but we have to accept the gospel ourselves. We need to be able to communicate the message, not everything about the Bible. This is where I was, this is where Jesus met me, and this is what's happened since. Devour the word of God, feed on it. The bitterness in our stomach should move us to do something. To once again, another time no matter how many times it takes, proclaim the truth to other people. John was 90-something years old, exiled on Patmos, and Jesus tells him, you must go prophesy again. That's what you need to do after ingesting the Word of God. People that we love are just one conversation away from the sweetness that is the promise of Jesus Christ. Let's be doers. Let's risk rejection one more time and proclaim the good news to everyone. I'm praying that this Thanksgiving, God will fill us not only with turkeys, but with boldness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I thank you, God, that your word is not just something we read to learn. Your word is something we apply in our lives. God, please don't let us leave this place like we were when we came in. I pray tonight that when we hit our knees and talk to you, we will be different people than where we were this morning because of what we've learned here. Help us, God, to pray as those in Acts prayed for boldness to share the gospel that's what Thanksgiving is really about. You see, by sharing the gospel with non-believers, we bring worship and thanksgiving to our Lord because we are glorifying His name. Holy Spirit, go ahead of us. Prepare the path. Open hearts. Begin to prepare the field for the message to be delivered. Help us, God, to learn to bring the message not in judgment but with love and compassion and mercy but also a very real truth. We trust you, God, to go ahead of the conversation. We trust you that if we're obedient, you will bring the harvest. Send us to the harvest, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.